Hello, this is Alex Granado, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you're listening to Ed Talk. Today we are talking with Hope Morgan Ward. She is the Bishop of the North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church, and her husband, Mike Ward. He is a former State Superintendent of Public Instruction and a former North Carolina Superintendent of the Year. Thank you both for talking with me. Thank you. It's a good, good to talk with you. Thanks, Alex. Good to have this conversation. And uh, I just want to start kind of uh, setting the education table. You both are uh, involved in education in different ways. If you can just tell me uh, a little bit about what you think of the state of education in North Carolina. Well, here in North Carolina, uh, we need all the uh, people that we can possibly have involved in the education of our children. And um, I work with public schools through the North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church. We are 800 congregations across eastern North Carolina, and we uh, engage through congregations for children uh, with the children across our state. And as we do so, uh, we see things that delight us, administrators, uh, teachers, parents, very involved, and we see also things that break our hearts, uh, children who do not have what they need in schools that uh, do not have adequate facilities uh, and who search for teachers. And Mike, I, I, you've had, uh, you know, you've been involved in administration. You're the superintendent of public instruction, so you've been very involved in education. I think that you, yeah, you ended your tenure as superintendent of public instruction in 2004. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and so it's been a while since then. What do you think about the state of education and and how it's changed since you were in that role? We've we've remained uh, deeply interested in and 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 increasingly concerned about um, what's happening with schools in the state over the course of, of these past 12, 13 years. Um, yeah, I have mixed perspectives on, on the state of schools in North Carolina. There's obviously significant progress to report in public education. There are a number of measures where uh, we're making serious progress. We're, 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 uh, we, we have lower dropout rates. We have higher rates of graduation. Uh, our performance on the SAT and ACT are, are getting better. Our performance on state tests is improving. So there are a number of academic indicators and, and performance measures where, where we're obviously showing progress. Um, and, and we're doing that in the face of growing challenges. Um, uh, the, the needs of students have increased over the past several years. We're now one of those states in the country where over half the kids um, uh, in public schools uh, uh, live at the poverty level. Uh, and so um, to make the progress that we're making uh, and to do so in, in the face of increasing challenges I think is, is pretty significant and I'm, I'm proud of schools for, for stepping up to those challenges. But we also have the challenge of trying to, to improve public education in the state at a time when schools haven't been adequately resourced uh, and public policy in support of public education hasn't been what it should have been. And, and hope that, that kind of leads to my next question. In, in the face of both the success and, and I guess the impediments, things that you think should be changed, what role do you think faith has in public education, a, a space where traditionally faith is not invited in? People of faith are, are called and energized uh, to create more just and caring communities for all people, particularly the the most vulnerable, including the youngest, oldest, uh, those who have particular needs. Um, 
faith communities have much to offer uh, the public schools. The public schools are where all children, uh, all young people are invited in and received. Uh, they're a very important institution in our midst. And it's important that people of faith engage in the public schools in their communities. Uh, it's in these places that we as people of faith come to know all of the people and see all of the people in our communities. Being engaged in the public schools uh, keep us from um, becoming closed in upon our own community, which is the tendency of all people in all places to, to draw circles around ourselves and those most like us. Um, being engaged in the schools has energized more than one of our congregations. In fact, a number of them would give testimony of having um, spiritual energy as a result of engaging with the very uh, real and presenting needs of our children and their teachers and administrators. Uh, people of faith are called to be engaged in the wider world. And Mike, I wonder if you could also answer that question from your perspective, being in the school system, are, are people of faith uh, a group that people in public education think about when they think about making changes to, to the state of public education? I think they do so increasingly. Um, it's, it's pretty apparent in most communities that the Methodist churches <laughs> care about what's going on in schools because over over 80 percent of, of the United Methodist churches across eastern North Carolina are, are now engaged in some way uh, in public education. So I think it increasingly um, the faith community is viewed as a, a resource and a support system for schools. And I, I think schools and, and um, faith institutions have found uh, appropriate ways to, to navigate the, 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 the First Amendment uh, proscriptions about um, faith and, and, and public institutions so that, that what happens by way of service through churches and faith community, uh, faith institutions, is, is appropriate and lawful um, and, and, and most of all helpful. And Mike, I want to continue with you for a minute because before we uh, started the podcast, you were telling me about a speech you regularly give. And I was wondering if you could uh, tell our listeners a little bit about that speech and, and the topic. Well, I, I, I uh, speak uh, from time to time, and one of my themes is, is what's happening with public schools in the state. <laughs> so the speech is five things that ought to keep us awake at night when we think about public education. Uh, and I won't belabor our listeners with, with all five at this point, but I'll tell you that number one on the list is how we treat teachers. Um, and... And I, I make that number one on the list because it's real clear through research that the single most important variable, school-based variable, the single most important things that uh, thing that happens in a school is, is uh, that relationship between teacher and student. Teacher's the most important school-based variable in whether or not children are successful uh, educationally. And, and we don't have a really good track record in recent years uh, relative to how we treat teachers. Um, salaries uh, were abysmally low as of a few years ago. They've crept up slowly, but we're still 44th in the nation uh, in teacher salary. Uh, how we resource schools, and, and, and that's a, a big variable in how well teachers feel supported, the kinds of, of equipment, supplies, and materials and resources that we make available in schools. Uh, we, our our per-pupil funding uh, in North Carolina uh, is 40th in the nation. So we, we're 
we're lagging the nation in committing resources to schools, resources that make it attractive for teachers to want to be in those schools. Um, so through a, a, a series of legislative actions over the course of the se last several years and through a, a process of not adequately rewarding teachers, we've made it increasingly unattractive to be a teacher in North Carolina. In fact, one uh, profile of the states recently ranked us 45th in terms of the attractiveness of being a teach, uh, 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 the attractiveness of being a place to teach in the country, 45th across the nation in uh, in desirable places to be a teacher. That that's that's not just wrong. That's bad wrong. Um, it's 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 a statistic that breaks my heart, um, especially when we know when we understand how critical it is to put good teachers in front of kids, especially vulnerable kids. That's a that's a, a, a circumstance, a, a statistic, a, a status that, that we just cannot um, abide in North Carolina if we want to be for our communities what we ought to be in, in our public education institutions. And what happens through the faith community and the commitment of these churches uh, to these schools is is helpful to teachers, it's uplifting, it's supportive, and in a state that hasn't done a lot of the right things by teachers in the past few years. This kind of community gauge, engagement matters a lot. And, and I'm wondering, and, and hope you feel free to, to answer this if you like, uh, what do you, th he's talking about, you know, the, the obvious need to focus on teachers, that the research supports us. What do you think accounts for the fact that, according to him, we don't? We're not adequately funding public education uh, because the relationships are not present between those who have power and those who have access and those who do not. For example, <laughs> in training a group of our church folks to be engaged in public schools, our trainer asked, how many of you realize that in this county, 100% of the kids are on free and reduced lunch? Everybody raised their hand. Then the trainer asked, how many of you know the name of a child on free and reduced lunch? and no one in the room could call the first name of a child on free and reduced lunch. Um, therein lies the problem. <laughs> Even when we know the data, uh, we don't know the people. Our, our lives have become parallel, and so we're not engaged well across differences. And our legislature uh, needs to recognize the very real needs of children and uh, very few uh, folks get elected <laughs> to, to public office who uh, come out of our communities most impacted by, by poverty uh, and, and dysfunction. Our children deserve the very best schools that we can give them. And if we can help the public think proactively about what is good for the future for all of us, all of us together, um, I think that will make a difference in the way we vote, uh, in what we support in legislative action, uh, and the way we engage uh, across the street and down the street in the places where we live. It, it's an interesting answer because, um, you know, one, one aspect of it is, is the General Assembly, the legislators not being in touch with students on the ground who are affected by the policy, right? I mean, th this is one aspect of what you're saying. 
But another aspect of it is the population at large also not being in touch with those people. So, so it's a larger societal problem, it sounds like. Absolutely. We do four things in congregations for, for children, and we do these out of research, both with people like Mike who are professionally engaged and, and know the dynamics, and through the Duke Endowment, which uh, has invested large amounts of uh, resource in um, finding the best ways to engage and be helpful to children. We seek to do four things. Uh, we seek to meet basic needs of kids, backpacks, school supplies, food for the weekend, a winter coat, a pair of shoes, whatever is needed, uh, whatever the teachers and principals tell us is most needed in the school. The second thing we do is try to help every child learn to read by the time they're in the third grade. And we do this by collecting books, uh, having summer learning, uh, reading camps that push back learning loss, ensuring that kids are gifted with books to have at home during the summer because many kids don't have any books in their homes. The, the third thing is we seek to engage significant adults in the life of every child, particularly men, because many children do not have a male figure in their homes. Uh, in one community in Wilmington, for example, the demographics were 84 families in a particular community, and only four of those households had an adult male in the household. So, so we're, we're seeking and have had really wonderful success in a number of places of having men engaged in the schools as a presence, as a mentor on the field, uh, with the sports teams, helping kids uh, get on and off buses, greeting, being a presence at the school. And the fourth thing we seek to do is help people understand the impact of poverty on a child. If a child is hungry, if a child goes home uh, and doesn't have the heat in the house in the winter, uh, if a child can't sleep well at night, all of these things impact the way a child comes to school. And the impact of poverty is something we all need to understand because we can do better by all of our children here in North Carolina if we, if we understand more. And I want to I want to turn to you, Mike, now because I know that that you have um, you know been on the ground fighting efforts at things like opportunity scholarships, the 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 choice environment that is out there, and and having been at events where uh, you know pro school choice advocates talk about it, what they're saying is this is putting the power in the hands of the parents. That polls overwhelm overwhelmingly show that people think that parents are the best ones to decide where their kids go to school. So, so what about that argument? Why, why is that not a good thing? Yeah, so I, I actually joined 24 other uh, friends and like-minded individuals several years ago to sue the state over the voucher bill that was passed. Um, and it's not because we're anti-private education. Uh, we support a parent's right to choose non-public education. Um, and we have, uh, I was the state superintendent who uh, who oversaw the, along with the state board, the, the implementation of the earliest charter schools in North Carolina. So it's not that we're, we're uh, anti-choice, uh, uh, but we are opposed to um, the state using public taxpayer dollars in order to underwrite private education for the few. Um, the, the voucher system in North Carolina provides uh, a, a portion of what it takes for a child to, to attend a non-public school. Um, 
the families have to make up the difference. And so the notion of an opportunity scholarship for, for um, uh, low-income families, that's, that's a euphemism for a voucher that basically makes its way to, to benefit mostly uh, families who are uh, at least lower middle class. The families that are truly destitute don't get to play because they have to make up the difference between what it actually costs and what the voucher provides. So it's, um, you know, it, it's, I, I think it's a bit of a sham in that regard. Um, and, uh, and my other reason is that voucher schools are totally unaccountable. They receive public dollars, but they're not accountable in any way to the public. Now, some would argue that, yeah, but they're accountable to parents, um, and parents make the choice. But the, but the taxpayer in North Carolina has a right to know where his or her dollars are going and whether or not the institutions to where they're going are accountable. In North Carolina, that's not the case. It's a very freewheeling, uh, open process uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't provide good accountability for taxpayer dollars. So if it did uh, uh, provide accountability for taxpayer dollars, would, that, would it be okay then? No, I don't think so. Because I think, again, it continues to stratify. Um, I, I think it further stratifies the population. We've got enough division in the population as it is right now. So I think it further stratifies the population. And again, voucher systems don't provide a full ride to, to, uh, to private schools in North Carolina, to, to the vast majority of them. And so the fact that you have to make up the difference means that, again, we've, we've left low-income kids out of the process, out of the picture. So I want to go to follow up on something you were saying earlier, Hope, um, because you know a lot of the discussion around education and the politics of education is focused on getting people to you know support or oppose certain uh, policies and vote a certain way in order to enact or not enact certain policies. But what you were talking about in terms of people getting involved in the, the school discussion is more direct, more, more hands-on, more on the ground. Um, how important is that to getting people to understand what's going on in schools and, and, getting, and, and really important for the health of the public education system? How important is that? We who are Methodist um, trace our founding to John Wesley in England 250 uh, or more years <laughs> years ago, and he actually called direct engagement with people uh, a means of grace, which, <laughs> which means for us it's a way of accessing God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. That as we engage with people, that grace, mercy, and love flows both ways. One moment you're the giver, the next moment you're the receiver. <laughs> um, everybody gives, everybody receives, and it's a great chaos of, of, of loving interaction. And we find that to be true where we work with public schools. Um, there's not a, a template. We do have those four focus areas that I mentioned a moment ago, but a relationship begins with a school when some people from a church go to the principal of the school and simply say, how can we help you? And, and then listen. <laughs> and the principal and the teachers then tell the church what they most need. A church in Durham last year did this and the, the principal articulated the need for weekend backpacks of food because he, this principal knew children went home hungry and that's where they began. And so this, this direct interaction, this realization that the children we see on this playground don't have food at home until Monday. When we know that, when we know their names, 
um, when we see them on a regular basis, we care deeply. It's not an abstract caring, but we want this child to have food over the weekend, and we want this child to come in Monday morning and have what he or she needs to engage pencils, paper, a backpack full of supplies. We want this child to have the best possible teacher who's a resource because we love this child and we know who this child is. I think it's particularly important um, that we get the community more engaged in schools um, and, and Congregations for Children has been a marvelous way to, to, to see that happen. Um, but it's increasingly important that, that persons in the community who are not ordinarily engaged become engaged with schools. The, the percentage of the population that has school-aged children is dwindling all the time. So it's, it's, it's increasingly the case that folks who go to the polls to vote, for example, don't have school-aged children. Um, and that has implications for everything from bond issues to uh, what they have to say to their legislators and their commissioners when they have a chance to, to buttonhole them uh, uh, for a conversation, uh, how they, how they um, communicate about what's going on in schools and how schools need to be supported um, changes when they've had experiences in school and spent time with teachers and kids. And, and so the, the larger philosophical question I wanted to ask is, and it's not just related to education, but kind of political discussions in general, there is a perception that on all sides of just about every issue, everything has become too politicized and it's become too partisan and too extreme. Um, and I'm wondering what you all think about that in terms of the education debate. And then also if you think that uh, there is a way to change that and if there is a role that faith plays in that change. Yeah, so um, uh, public discourse these days is seems increasingly uncivil. Um, and, and yet this is a topic around which we really need to engage and we need to engage across um, partisan lines uh, and across um, uh, lines of race and class. Um, uh, so it, it, it's really important that we engage this topic cause, because so much is at stake. Um, and so every ally we can muster uh, in support of, of a thoughtful dialogue uh, in the community and with policymakers about the needs of public schools uh, is important and useful. Um, so much is at stake. The well-being of our communities is at stake, the, well-beings, the well-being of families uh, and the well-being of kids one by one. All that's at stake in this conversation about public education. It's not an easy conversation. Um, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a conversation that revolves around a lot of things, very heavily around resources. I mean, a huge bulk of the state's budget is committed to education. So it's, it's not surprising that, that there are vigorous and, and sometimes heated debates about it. But we need to engage in the debate. We need to engage in discourse um, and to keep it as civil as possible in the process. I have uh, worked with our leaders to convene um, dialogue and conversation around a number of contentious issues, um, immigration, <laughs> human sexuality, education. Uh, we have to learn again how to talk well with one another and more importantly how to listen well to one another. One of these recent convenings was a forum on public education. And it was not convened as a partisan gathering, but an opportunity for people to understand the way North Carolina funds its public schools. <laughs> we want to help educate people, uh, help people know 
the importance of state funding in North Carolina, which is very different than many other states where state funding is not as, as big an impact on the local communities as it is here. And when people leave that sort of event saying, you know, I never knew that. I've been a North Carolinian all my life and I never knew that. Uh, we feel like uh, we have offered something very important. In uh, the Christian tradition, we often uh, think about Jesus' teaching to be like light in darkness, to be like salt that seasons a stew, to be like leaven that makes the bread rise. <laughs> and other faith traditions have similar teachings that, you know, we are to do what we can in the place where we find ourselves so that the world is a more gentle, loving, compassionate place. That's, that's what we seek to do. And we have to uh, continually find ways to teach and learn and to learn and teach because we're all teachers and we're all learners it just depends on the moment a good illustration of what hope uh, said concerning um, understanding the funding system in north carolina it's true that north carolina spends more on public education today than it did a few years ago it's also true that north carolina spends less per child on public education than it did a few years ago. And those two facts are reconcilable. They seem to be contradictory, but they're reconcilable when you realize how rapidly the student population in North Carolina is growing. Um, so that's just one little piece of the debate, but it's one of the reasons, it's one of the factors in, in that discussion about the fact that we rank so low in per pupil expenditure in the country. Well, thank you both for talking with me. Thank you for what you do. It's very, very important. We've been talking with Hope Morgan Ward, Bishop of the North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church, and her husband, Mike Ward. He is a former state superintendent of public instruction and a former state superintendent of the year. And I'm Alex Granados, senior reporter for Education NC, and you've been listening to Ed Talk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>